everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Decision Hour. I'm Adam, and I do have Patty with me today. Patty? Hello, Adam. How are you? Greetings and salutations. Glad we could be here together. Greetings. Yes. <laughs> it's good to have another show. I'm really excited about today's show. We got a, a, a very special guest uh, with us today, one of our nation's heroes. Um, he's been doing a lot of great things. And uh, we're going to let's just jump right in, Patty, and let's bring him on. Uh, we have a retired Command Master Chief, United States Navy SEAL, Larry Wilski. Larry, are you there? Yes, sir. I appreciate you taking time to join us today. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's an honor, and it's uh, great to talk to the folks out there that know what veterans are about. Absolutely. Now, a little back story here. Just, I just recently met Larry at an event a couple of weeks ago and uh, hit it off and uh, love what he's doing and what he's all about. So we asked him to come on the show today. So Larry, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I, I live in San Diego. I grew up here in San Diego and then I joined the Navy here in San Diego back in 1983. I wasn't, uh, had no aspirations of being a SEAL. I was recruited in the Navy to be on the Navy wrestling team. And then my second year, I, we had a guy that showed up on the team who was a washout from SEAL training and everything he said sounded really cool. So that's when I tried out and went to Bud's and I, and I tell you, I had a blast at training. Really? No, no. Okay. So I got, I got to ask. So what, say that again. What year was that right around the time that you went to Bud's? I went to Bud's in 1985. Wow. So wrestler and goes to Bud's. What happens next? So, well, in training, you know, everybody said how hard SEAL training was, and it, it had its challenges, but I had a blast there. It was something I enjoyed every single day. Right. So it was kind of, I found a job I was wired for. And then my first duty station was SDV Team 1. We drove little mini subs. Oh. And I did five platoon and deployment cycles there as a primary pilot and, and some really cool leadership positions. And I went from there on to the Navy parachute team, the Leapfrogs, where we did demonstration jumps all over the country and had a, had a great time there, got 3000 jumps in. So that was a real cool job. Jeez. And then immediately went from there to seal team three. And about two months after I showed up, I got in a workup going to Bosnia and went and spent eight months in Bosnia, came right back. And 45 days later, we had a deployment to Kuwait for operation desert Thund thunder was there for about uh, just shy of six months. Came back, picked up a SEAL platoon, um, deployed, 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 deployed. And then on, when I was a uh, task in chief, we had just got back from doing maritime interdictions in the Northern Arabian Gulf for, uh, you know, another seven and a half month deployment. And I got back on September 4th, 2001. And I was on post-deployment leave when I saw 9-11 on TV. You know, everybody knows where they were when the Twin Towers got hit. And then 20 days, 22 days later, Task Force K-Bar, we were in Afghanistan getting after it. And it was a, uh, it was a great deployment. So then I went on back from, uh, that was still attached to Team 3. Then I went to Team 7 and did another subsequent five combat deployments between Iraq and Afghanistan. And then uh, finally, after my two Command Master Chief tours on the West Coast, got my last tour of duty and I was a social experiment. I was a SEAL Master Chief that went to go teach at the Navy Senior Enlisted Academy and lecture at the Navy War College. And what was that like? It was a it was a challenge. 
because, you know, the teams, your first name is your first name. Right. We don't really do the whole rank thing very often. Right. And then there I am at Newport and guys keep calling me Master Chief, um, which didn't work out very well. And then, you know, I remember a couple of guys, there was this one cat in particular, he was a, a Navy captain. And he all got, he got bent out of shape one day when I didn't salute him. And I didn't even know what he was talking about. He says, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, you know, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> so he explained it to me. And I go, well, you know what? At the, uh, where I come from, we do salute our officers every now and again. And it's usually because they're friends. We like them and respect them. But you get nothing out of me, pal. You're not earning it. And that didn't go well. So I had that cultural problem set to uh, overcome while I was there. <laughs> So you go now, now your entire career was, you retired after 30 years. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously it's safe to say that you've seen quite a bit of the world. What made you decide to retire? Was it just, you had a feeling or was it that time or was it just kind of like I'm done playing or, or what was it? They have a higher tenure in the Navy at 30 years. Okay. You, you, they can get rid of you or they can uh, go through a process and keep you around for another four years at the most. But at that point, and uh, 65 broken bones, and I had just had my 16th surgery, it was time to, uh, you know, hang up the six guns and find another job. And so I have, I have a question yeah. about that, um, because I'm really a big advocate in the military veteran community as far as healthcare goes and the uh, VA and uh, medical treatment. Um, my husband was fortunate enough to have really excellent medical treatment after he had injuries in combat. Um, but I know some don't. What was your experience and was it good um, with all of your medical history going on? How, how was that experience and how will that um, how does that impact your thinking on what does or doesn't need to be done within the VA healthcare system? Because that's well, a pretty Patty, hot topic. Patty, there's three answers to that. And I'm glad you brought that up because one of the large concerns on me running for Congress is veteran, putting veterans first. When I was on active duty, we got treated like professional athletes in the SEAL teams. You break something, you fix it, tape it up, get back in the game. It was all about rehab and minimizing downtime. So like in 2002, I got my first hip replacement. And within four months, I was back in a SEAL task unit running, PTing, and training. So it was, you know, get back in the game. Having broken a lot of bones over the years, really only one time when I broke both my legs was I out of commission for any sizable amount of time. And that was about five and a half months. And the rest of the time it was, you know, you break a rib, suck it up. You break a couple of fingers, tape them up. You, you know, you break an arm, tape it up better. And the, the medical department we had had a great mindset on rehab recovery and get back in the game. And then I retired and things were completely different because I get all my medical through the VA. So about 11 weeks ago, I got my second hip replacement. The surgical team was fantastic. The um, surgeon himself was great. The bureaucracy of one year that it took me to get there was insane. I mean, good thing I didn't have cancer, I'd be dead. And what I've noticed is there's two things going on with the VA that really need some attention. The first would be, you know, we've got between anywhere from 20 to 24 veterans a day commit suicide. And then the other thing is the service in the VA. So, you know, looking at the first, first one of those problem sets, I, a lot of those guys aren't combat vets. 
so some of it is PTS or PTSD. A lot of it's a um, an abandonment issue because in the military, as you know, and you know, Adam knows real well, when we first join up, they teach us everything, how to tie your shoes, how to fold your clothes, make your bed, shave, clean everything in a uniform way. And then you get a skill set and then you get leadership jobs and you teach people those things. And then when you start working your way up, you become a resource manager. Now, when I was a command master chief, if somebody's car broke down, I knew where to go. If they needed furniture, I knew where to go. If their kids had special needs, I knew where to go because I had all those resources. Then when somebody's out of the military, you know, the VA gives you a tap class or, you know, a three-day class. And then here's the link to our unfriendly website. You're on your own. So guys are completely abandoned. And it's very, um, it's, it's very, it's, it's full of despair. It's frustrating. Uh, frustrating at least. Yeah. And then you get guys that are 22, 23 years old. They're young kids. They're out and they've got nowhere to go. And, you know, my thought is, why don't we do, why don't we treat them as least as good as we do convicts in prison that get out? You know, the VA has got a huge infrastructure, but if you call the VA, you don't get a call back or you rarely do. Right. Well, why don't we take caseworkers at the VA and mandate that when somebody separates from the military, we treat them at least as good as a parole officer does an ex-con. I mean, ex-cons get a halfway house, a place to go live. The POs call them twice a week, three times a week. They make sure they're putting in job applications. They follow up and look for triggers for psychological issues, pressure, drug issues. Well, we're doing that for people that broke the law. Why don't we do the exact same thing for people that have served their country honorably? And and we can do that because the VA's got enough infrastructure to do it. It just needs a cultural shift to do it. Which is really interesting because I never really thought about it like that. And I've I've been doing advocacy within the military community for 12 years, and that's the first time I actually heard it compared to look at our our basically our prisoners, those yeah, our who prison are like system, doing really yeah. wrong things. And then our veterans who are doing the right thing aren't even given those opportunities. Um, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's sad. It, it is sad. And, you know, you, you look at the vets on the other side of it on medical service. So our president just lowered the time frame from 30 days to 20 days. Before, if you couldn't get an appointment through the VA to see to get medical help or at least get screened in 30 days, you get outsourced. So I, I've gone through this process of about 28 days. They give you an appointment to somebody who can't really do much and give you another appointment 28 days later. Right. It's well, like it's prolonging they, the problem. They, they do. They don't solve the problem. The customer service culture is at the MD level and above, not at the primary care. So what I would propose we do, and again, this is a cultural change in the VA, is we take the nurse practitioners that they use for primary care and give them about 10 to 1 oversight for an MD. And then every single day at every single VA clinic, hospital, and in you know, unit, they have from 0800 in the morning to 1100 sick call hours. So anybody can go and get seen and immediately get a treatment path that's viable instead of waiting so long to see somebody. I mean, I've been, you know, before I got my hip done and it was bone on bone, it was a little bit uncomfortable. I would go in and they would say, well, we're going to mail you drugs. And the first batch was opioids. So I threw them out. 
we're going to mail drugs to you. And then sometimes I got them. Sometimes I didn't, I got mailed the wrong stuff. And if I wanted to go follow up, I couldn't just go back in. I'd have to call the call center, get a call back within a week and get an appointment within 30 days. That's not customer service. No, We need to change that. Larry, I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit before we go back to the VA stuff here. Now you're also a business owner as well, correct? I am. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you do? Sure. I have a, uh, it's two parts. As a small business owner, my main job is I'm a consultant to a logistics support company. They, they do tugs, barges, offshore logistics support, um, all kinds of stuff. And what I do is all the military sales and government sales for them. So we provide target vessels for the SEAL teams to do their boardings on. We do target vessels for the Marines, big Navy, offshore support for EOD um, units out here on the West Coast. We've laid two EOD training minefields for them. Uh, we support airdrops from the Air Force coming out offshore. So it's a pretty big uh, full spectrum stuff. And this is just business I created when I got out because I knew the demand signal was there for training. And now we're providing training stuff that's literally pennies on the dollar to the way we used to do it with military assets. So it's providing a, a needed service at a much lower cost. And, and I enjoy being part of that. That's pretty cool. Now, I want to kind of make another shift here. Being a business owner, you're 30 years in service, and thank you, by the way. Oh, thanks, brother. You're, you're a business owner, and now I see that you're, you're, you're running for Congress. How did that happen? What, what made you decide to take that leap to, to run for Congress? Well, it's not my first turn of the barrel on this. When I just retired... I was approached by a guy named uh, Nick Popovich, a Marine Corps gunny who got out, and he had run for office a couple of times and asked me if I would run where he had ran the previous uh, time. And, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, and service to country always sounds good. So I ran against an incumbent Democrat named Susan Davis out here in a very high Democrat district. And, you know, no money, no experience. I still ended up getting 43% of the vote. In a, in a district that had 29% Republicans. So it was better than anybody's done in that district in history, which was, which was great. It was just a matter of hustle, really. Okay. And then um, the last election cycle, San Diego, we went from five Republican districts in the last 20 years down to one, one Republican district. And currently that one's held by another combat veteran, Republican, but he's you know got some court troubles coming up. And we can't afford to lose this one because then we're 0 and 5 in a military town. And that just won't work. Right. So I had a uh, exploratory committee, a bunch of friends get together for a few months. And we explored the entire district, the viability of this campaign, and decided this is good and continued service to country. So get after it. And that's what we're doing. Now, what's part of your plan then for Congress? I mean, I, I'm on your website right now, and I'm looking at it. And those of you that are listening to the show, you can actually go to Larry's website. Uh, it's LarryWilski.com. It's L-A-R-R-Y-W-I-L-S-K-E.com. And he's got his plan right there. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your plan? What's your plan for Congress, Larry? Well, you've got on the webpage, you've got my issues that are listed. And these are the issues of the majority of the people in this district. So that makes it easy that I line up with them. But the game plan is pretty simple. Use my background, both as a defense contractor, uh, military, having been a command master for logistics support command, and having ran a couple of budgets to get on the Armed Services Committee. 
Then the next piece is as a veteran who, well, I won't take health care from Congress. I'll take health care from the VA and continue there until it's the way it should be. That should be good enough to get me in a position to lobby to get on the Veterans Affairs Committee. Both those committees are very popular. And if we can make my district a strong, safe Republican seat, I can use those two seats to raise money in D.C. and actually target other races here in Southern California. And also, because they're very strong and a lot of money goes to the VA and Department of Defense, they're great points to negotiate in Congress for legislation. Mm -hmm. So I can take a look at things like the, um, you know, the sanctity of life is a big issue out here. I'm a very pro-life guy. And on Armed Services Committee, I'm in a position to actually negotiate with another committee to carve out funding from, say, Planned Parenthood and see if we can make that money available to nonprofits to provide pre- and post-abortion counseling so we can take that ridiculous abortion number we have and drive it lower. So it's getting on the right committees so I can negotiate legislation across the boards. Let me ask you this. You're, you're down in, in uh, Southern California, down in San Diego area. I see border security as one that hits home for me on, on, on several levels. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, I spend half my time in Arizona can you touch a little bit on what the border security is like down there just very briefly? Sure. You know, I was um, blessed, if you will. I was the chairman of the National Border Security Summit in 2014 for the four southern border states. And, you know, right out of the gates, President Trump has got it right. We need we need a wall. Nobody's ever disputed that until lately. And we also need to up the electronics on the wall so we can, you know, wall slows people down. Electronics helps to identify them. And then we need boots on the ground that can go get them and wrap them up. But the two things that are missed on a lot of the border security talks are our border patrol agents aren't paid enough. They're some of the lowest paid law enforcement officers out there. So they go through an academy, they go to border, border patrol, then they, they get hired out by somewhere else. We need to pay those guys a good amount, make them the most highly paid law enforcement. They're our first line of defense and you get what you pay for. Yeah. Well, that's and, and very, very true. Is, <laughs> very we've true. got a pollution problem on the border here in San Diego from the Tijuana River that's toxic. And and we've lost people from uh, seal training, from you know flesh-eating bacteria swimming offshore right where that river comes out. So that's a part of the border security that needs to be addressed as well as the pollution problem. And we can negotiate with Mexico and make that happen. We can fix it. Well, so, yeah. I want to I want to ask you another one, and this one is it, it's kind of uh, it's it's interesting to see establishing term limits. You don't see a lot of uh, people that are in politics or getting into politics that uh, want to establish or think that establishing term limits is a good idea. Why why are you for establishing term limits? Well, it's um, it's pretty straightforward. Cong- Congress, you know, our founding fathers never had Congress as a career path. It was to have people that were in business or successful people go and represent their constituencies and then go back home and do their jobs. I think the Senate shouldn't last any more than two terms. That's 12 years. If you can't get stuff done in 12 years in any other business, you're fired. And then the House of Representatives, I think, should go at least that long, you know, between 10 and 12 years. And the reason is simple. One of the largest spending and appropriations is the military in the government. It's the largest amount of money we spend. Some of the processes in the military go five and 10 years. So if you're going to see a project go cradle to grave, 
and not get um, misappropriated or raped for something else, mm-hmm. you really have to have somebody there to, to watch it all the way from start to finish. And every five years, they pick up new projects. So having somebody there with some longevity makes sense. But the the counter to that from you know, the career politicians is they always complain about the bureaucracy in Washington. It's there for decades. And the only way to fight the bureaucracy is have no term limits. Well, then my thought is, well, then you're part of it. And, you know, that that's that simple. That makes sense. That's makes going to be another uh, challenge. And I think you make your money on the buying end. So I get in Congress, what I'll start doing to support candidates is make them sign a pledge to term limits. So as we kept getting more and more candidates coming in on folks that tried out of Congress, we can get a new wave of people over probably five or six years that believe in term limits and will actually legislate to term limits. And we, we start getting it back to where it should be. Nice. Now, Larry, you're on a show called the decision hour. Um, and one of the questions that we ask everybody is, you know, name a time in your life where your feet were on the line and you had to make that decision. Uh, what was what was that decision for you, and what was the atmosphere like? And that decision could be anything. It could be joining the military, getting out of the military, getting married, moving, whatever the case may be. But what was that decision for you, and what was the atmosphere like for you at that time? The um, you know I've made thousands of that types of decision, but there's a, here's a little quick war story. So back in the mid '90s, there was this little conflict in Bosnia, and I was there on a joint team. I was a team leader. It was me, one other SEAL six army SF guys and one Brit. We worked for a British general and we had good communications. And I got a call one night for me and my British patrol partner to go out and see where this um, little disturbance was going in a Russian forward operating base because the Russians were part of that. Yeah. So I get out there and there's probably 150, 200 Serbians, a, a dozen Bosnian Muslims that had actually started some trouble and they got answered by a much larger force and the two of us show up because we had SATCOM and then there's a Russian tank and a squad of guys. And the kid that was in charge was this Russian, I would say like a corporal, probably 22, 23 years old. And we got there right as everything was really escalating because everybody over there drinks. So they're all drunk, armed and angry. And, you know, I show up and this one uh, Serb goes up and he grabs a little Russian flag off this guy's tank and threw it on the ground. So, you know, it's it's going to be game on. And I had my pistol. That's all I had was a pistol. So I, you know, quickly walked up to the guy, put my pistol up to his head and told him to pick it up through my interpreter who was shaking in her boots. He picked up the flag. He put it back on the, on the tank and you could tell you there's guns everywhere going. I think there's a couple of grenade pins ready to get pulled. And this Russian kid drops into his tank and then he comes back up with a clear bottle of homemade vodka. <laughs> So I, you know, the decision was what now? Well, it was pretty simple. Holster my pistol, have a drink and hand the bottle to the Serb that started the problems. And it went from, we were all going to die to a party. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes those decisions pay off. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's a pretty cool story. And I got to say, that's probably the first one we've ever had like that on on this show is in the years that we've been around so larry we're coming up on time um you know i appreciate you you, you coming on and you, you always have a, a an open mic here patty do you got any other questions for larry today patty 
you got to unmute your mic, Patty. Oh, sorry. There, there sorry. you go. When are you running? So yeah, when are you running for president? I won't. No? There's much, no, there's much smarter people and much more capable people for that job. I think Congress is a good place. House of Representatives is a good place where I can go as far as I can go. And believing in term limits at the end of this stretch, it'll be time to retire and spend more time on my horse Dutch. Oh, I like that. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Well, Larry, we appreciate you again. We'll make sure that we get every, uh, all your contact information and whatnot uh, on our social media channels and and uh, moving forward. And like I said, you always got a, a home here with us. So uh, again, sir, thank you for your service to our country, everything that you've done so far and what you plan on doing uh, in the near future. Hey, thank you, brother. And again, thank you for your service as well. Absolutely. You guys are doing great work. Thank you very much. Patty, anything else? Any parting words before we let everybody go today? No, just, I mean, other than everybody go over to the decisionhour.com. If you haven't listened to our past episodes, make sure you do that. And thank you to Heroes Media Group thank, thank for you being very, our sponsor. Absolutely. That's all the time we have today, folks. For Patty, I'm Adam. You've been listening to The Decision Hour.